Good morning. The reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thank you, Jim. Good morning. As you know, we didn't get finished, and um, so we're gonna we're gonna pick right back up with the church at Pergamum and uh, and and roll. Um, just set the stage for you in case you haven't listened to that or or, or you missed uh, last week as we're studying through Revelation. We're um, we're, we're taking note of the churches, and uh, as as these guys are. A, are in the middle of the difficulty. They're, they're smack dab in the middle of the advance of the gospel. They're on the frontiers. The gospel is going forward. They're definitely outnumbered. And as they hold faithful to the gospel message, the reality is that when people are in combat and they're in war, there are casualties, there's difficulty. And uh, there are uh, beliefs assimilated into the life of the church and and chief shepherd Jesus is coming along, the one who is also sitting on the throne, ruling the nations well. The one who is getting the work done. Also, as king, he's also chief shepherd. And chief shepherd Jesus uh, appears to John when he's on Patmos in exile, being persecuted. And he, and he gives to him this revelation that is to be preached to the churches so that as they advance the cause, as they stay in the fight as they move forward and, and all the difficulties that come with doing gospel work, they may be encouraged, they may be instructed, exhorted to move forward and stay faithful. Last week we, we took note of Pergamum, the spiritually charged climate that they find themselves in. Dude, we're talking like we're spiritual Mecca. I mean, they have it all from temples to emperor worship to you name it, it is spiritual Mecca. You want it, you got it. It's there. And planted there in the middle of this place is this church that is seeking to stay faithful to the mission given them. And we took a look at the fact that Chief Shepherd Jesus is encouraging them by reminding them, I know you are where Satan's throne is at. You're in the middle of the hotbed of spiritual difficulty. But you have to watch out, he told them, of these various issues. He called the sin of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, or the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we're not going to go back and rehash 
how those two are connected, but they're connected into the same teaching. And we took note of that, particularly where we hung out for a few minutes, is on the permissiveness, the being allowed to incorporate into one's worship practices the practices of those who are perverted and off base. In particular, we took note of the Numbers 25 reference to Balaam and how Balaam being a prophet. And by the way, I think it's interesting to note, we talked about this this morning in our Connect group. Just because he's called a prophet does not make him a prophet of the Lord. In that day in particular, there were many prophets. There were prophets of Molech, prophets of Baal. There were a multitude of prophets. Remember, Elijah had a contest with 400 prophets of Baal. Prophet does not equal Jesus. Pastor does not equal Jesus, i.e. Rob Bell. Bottom line, just because you are in a church and just because a person writes a book and just because they tweet does not mean that what they say is right. Okay? So, Chief Shepherd Jesus comes along and he says, I know you've got some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And and he's speaking to the church. The implicit deal here is, inside of you there are some who hold to this teaching. A pastor that I actually trust and listen to and, and like to watch what he says and listen to what he tweets, says it like this, sometimes you've got to shoot the wolves. You, you, you take a look at what Paul said, and Paul very rarely said, watch out for those, those emperor worshipers. He very rarely said, watch out for those people who teach another religion because they're going to get you. No, he says, watch out for the wolves among you. Most bad teaching doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. They can tweet it. They can Facebook it. They can put it on the internet. They can write it in books. And undiscerning Christians swallow it hook, line, and sinker because it, it feels right for whatever reason. Our job as your elders is to take Chief Shepherd Jesus' message and and bring it to you so that you have a framework off of which you can operate so that when these types of things come your way, the filter's up. The filter's there to, to catch the stuff so that it doesn't get into you and become part of who you are and how you operate. Last week I made mention of the fact that we don't hold hands with those kind of people who want to compromise on the gospel, who want to involve. Last week I put in the notes, I used used the word syncretism. Bottom line is, it's those kind of guys, the bells of the world, who call themselves pastors, who have allowed into the gospel non-gospel teachings that we won't hold hands with. I will not call them pastor. I will not call them follower of Jesus. I will call them wolves. And spiritually, we ignore them. I shoot them. Stay away from them. Don't anybody please go say, Jolly said to get a gun and shoot them. I mean, ignore them. Stay away from them. Rebuke them. 
He doesn't know me and he doesn't care. I'm useless in his world. But if I knew him, he should be rebuked. If anyone has relationship to him, he should be rebuked. And, and the sad thing is, he's just the visible one. There are churches all over the United States who teach that. Do you know that you're in the minority? The evangelical church is in the minority. And even inside that little designation, evangelical, it is starting to become rotten. Just because it's evangelical doesn't mean it's necessarily gospel. Do you know, most interestingly enough, most people don't even know what the word evangelical means. It's built on the root evangel. Evangelist. Evangel means gospel. Evangelical means gospelical. In other words, it, it, the implication is you are into the gospel. And when you hear somebody say evangelical, but what they say isn't gospel, no. Ta-da! Radar. They don't believe the gospel. They're not evangelical. That's a term we have to learn to fight for because the gospel's integrity is at stake. And Jesus, chief shepherd Jesus, is warning them, don't go with those people who are teaching the teaching of Balaam, who are teaching you to incorporate into your fabric and framework the teachings of other things that are outside, external to the gospel. And so I say to us once again, let's be careful that we don't allow ourselves to begin to think or act upon anything that is foreign to the gospel. I love the fact, I love, I love, I love the fact that we don't do chronological snobbery here. I don't know if you noticed, but none of the songs we sung this morning were modern. They were just gospel because gospel never gets old. Never gets old. Gospel transcends cultures. And it's crazy how you can take gospel and sing it with a million different instruments in a million different cultures because gospel is above culture. It's intended to penetrate and transform culture. And anything foreign to that, we ignore. We push to the side. Because if it's not gospel, it's garbage. And Chief Shepherd Jesus warns them, do not allow the teaching of Balaam, which is the incorporation into their belief structure. Back in Numbers 25, the beliefs of the nations around them, so that with Yahweh, they were incorporating the practices of Molech and Baal and various other deities of Canaan at that time. I talked about the fact that lawlessness perverts the gospel. Lawlessness in regard to doctrine. Interestingly enough, 2 Corinthians 10 Paul says the weapons we fight with are spiritual, they're not physical. And they destroy strongholds. Strongholds are not bad habits. It's not chewing your nails. It's not what you drink or whatever else. That's not a stronghold. A stronghold is a belief that is external to the gospel that is not right. We get that one wrong in our culture too. We think strongholds a bad habit. It's a false belief. And then he says it is the gospel that tears down strongholds. And then he goes on and taking and exegeting this idea. And he moves into chapter 11 and says, No wonder we have to be aware because even Satan himself comes disguised as an angel of light. Or pastor. Or deacon. Or an elder. A lie, a thought, the incorporation of something contrary to the gospel. And Chief Shepherd Jesus says, you have some who are holding to this teaching. And he says to them, repent, turn away. I want want to say to us, check your thinking. 
at every stage, check your thinking. The, the unfortunate thing about modern day Christianity is reviewed as ignorant. I want you to understand that intelligence does not mean one must deny the gospel. I would argue learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, get as educated as you can, holding firmly to the reality of the gospel. Because we are needed in this world of academia in which people are writing and publishing where we can hold the gospel high. We're losing a generation of scholars. They're dying. J.I. Packer will die one day. Many of them have passed. Piper's getting old. And thank God he's vibrant, as vibrant as he ever has been. Theologians are dying, and I hope that there will be men who will raise up behind them, women who will be educated and prepared to hold the gospel high in this world of academia and college and whatever level you happen to find yourself so that the gospel message stands firm. And we know that we can incorporate those things in because we are fighting a battle that is deeper than the physical. We talked about last week the fact that this is where Satan's throne was. And it was an education center. 200,000 volumes in their library. They were well educated. They weren't fools. And they're incorporating all of these things into their thinking. And Chief Shepherd Jesus says, repent. 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 He reminded them that if you do not, I will come and I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will come and He will take the Word. The Word Himself, capital W, Word, will come and bring the Word, the truth, and He will war against those who will not repent. Earlier He said, I will remove your lampstand. I will take away your influence. I think it is an apt thing to do to pray and ask Jesus to remove false teachers. Whatever means necessary, remove them. Because what's at stake is not them. What's at stake is the gospel of Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when you do, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Matthew 23. Go read it. We can't afford to not ask the Father to remove men and women who are leading people off into the chasm of eternity. Thinking it's all good because I bought your lie. Jesus says to this church, watch yourself. Don't incorporate that in. We learned last week that these conquering people, Jesus says to those who conquer, I will give them hidden manna. You get to eat the nourishment of Christ. They are nourished by Jesus. Jesus is enough. <laughs> He's enough. I love how Paul at the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he was there a couple of years with those people, said, while I was among you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What would you do if I taught two years on the crucifixion? You go find you another church because you get bored? I'm getting tired of you talking about the cross. Can we move on to how to manage my money or be a better dad? 
Paul said, well, I was among you. I determined to know nothing except Jesus and His crucifixion. Sounds important. Why? Jesus is enough. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. There's nothing else that will feed you. You can can budget till you're blue in the face and live life debt-free and internally be rotten and go to hell. So, I could teach you how to manage your money all day from here and neglect the cross and you can go to hell and, and I wasted my life and yours. It's not to say teaching stewardship from God's perspective is wrong. It's not. Amen. But it doesn't trump the manna of Christ. I would argue that you can't teach good budgeting until you teach Jesus. Because He's the owner of all things. He made your resources. He put them in your hands. So let's start with Him. And when you get Him, I have a sneaking suspicion. When all things are in order, you begin to do those things fairly well. Because when Chief Shepherd Jesus runs your life, you're not making decisions. He is. You're just obeying. Conquering people get manna. They get more Jesus. And then they're given the white stone. That was funny. I get a white rock. What good is that? Discovered that this stone given to gladiators and those who participated in the games was like a ticket to anything and everything they wanted to get into. Had their name on it. Gladiator Jolly. A conquering in the arena beast of a man. And I would carry my rock and, and I would hold my rock and I would get entrance to whatever I wanted in the kingdom. And, and that's, that's the image here that, that you having this, this, this token with your name on it that you know it's a new name. He's transformed you. He's given you identity. You belong to Him. And it gives you access to the kingdom of God. The riches of Christ. And so that's what conquering people get. So Jesus says, that's what repentance looks like. Feed on me and gain access to all that is mine. Well, we left off there and asked this question. What does it look like for us to feed on the kingdom? What does it look like for us to make sure we are repentant people who are going hard after the mission, going hard after the goal of Christ exalted? That's where these nine points come in. And some of them I've left off. Um, Here's where I want to go with this. Our pursuits, gospel pursuits, must be things that are gospel. That sounds basic, I know. And we're sort of, no, duh. But in a context in which we particularly live, it is easy to pursue other things and put a t-shirt on it or a chain or a tattoo or whatever and call it Christian when it's distinctly not. 
our pursuits as people who are coming after Chief Shepherd Jesus, if we're going to avoid incorporating and permissiveness into our practice, our pursuits must look like gospel pursuits, individually and corporately, as individuals and as a church body. All that we go after must be carefully looked at to make sure that it is gospel, that it is Christ-focused, it is mission-centric, it is pointing us to the completion of Jesus and His kingdom. So we ask the question, what are those things? What, what are we supposed to pursue? And here's, here's the answer. Simple, but it's complex. We are to pursue the things that make God happiest. The challenge of the Christian life, the Bible uses this word sanctification. The challenge of the Christian life is a work that is produced by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. In which Holy Spirit begins to work out in our our flesh the things that are of Him. Because what happens to us is when we become followers of Jesus, the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, the work purchased at the cross is that God would take out a cold, dead seat of desire called the heart. And He would put in a new heart that was warm and vibrant and alive. And its desires would be His. The language is, I will cause you to walk in my way. What a... What a what a beautiful reality that our internal desire functions would be shifted from deadness to I want to obey Him. But there's one barrier to that. What is that? This. Because internally, Paul describes this in Romans 7. He said, the things I want to do, I have trouble doing them. And the things I don't want to do, they come so easily. And he cries out at the end of the chapter, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, the reality for us today is there's no guilt for us. Amen? But we also note that we wrestle hard against desires here. Because the desires inside here are different. And we find it difficult to do what we want to do. And things we don't want to do come so naturally. We think, what are we going to do? Here's what we do. We look here and we find the pleasures of God. And we go hard after them at all costs. At all costs. At all costs. So the question is, what makes God happy? Because here's the deal. You and I are going to do what we want to do. You want to know what you value and believe? Make a list of what you do daily, and that's what you believe. We like to live in this dualistic idea that what I believe can actually be different from what I do. No. What we believe is what we do. This is why it's so hard for us, because often what we, what we say internally, we know reality is doesn't often work itself out. And so we need some help. We have to have as a frame of reference to say, God, what makes you happy? Because ultimately, what makes God happy is what makes that internal new heart tick. And 
be full of life. So that what ends up happening over time is that we begin to work out with these things. With these and with these and with these. We begin to work out internally those desires that are planted in there in that new heart. And we learn to win the war against our flesh. Paul said, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We've got two desires going. We've got a desire inside that wants to obey and a desire outside that wants to disobey. So, so don't make any provision for the flesh. None. So how do we do that? We have to take a look at what makes God happy and pursue that. And here's what I want to promise us. Here's what I want us to see. That what will happen is God's desires will become ours internally and externally. So that one day, hopefully by the time we're 70 or 80, we're running in full-blown desire of Jesus. Don't be discouraged. It's a lifelong battle. I want to say this. Before we get specifics. There's this mentality among my generation that I was to have been there yesterday. And we think that if I'm not here by the time I'm X age, somehow there's been failure. Stop for a second. Take a look at who's changing the world inside the gospel. It's men in their 80s, men in their 90s, men in their 70s, men in their 60s. There are few exceptions to the rule, but they are few. By and large, it's men and women who've cut their teeth through life following Jesus. And they hit their prime when our culture says, freaking retire and live off your interest. And Jesus says, go. He called Moses when he was 80. We think I got an IRA. It's time to go play golf. And God says, don't waste your life. You need to understand this little observation. Most of us in our 20s will wrestle with what it is we do. In our 30s, we'll figure it out, hopefully, and we'll begin to refine it. We'll start getting toward 40 and we'll find that we've refined what we do well. In our 40s, we will become experts in that field. In our 50s, we will just be Hitting a stride. And Satan has won the day. And us buying the lie. It's time to quit then. And Jesus says, you've just started running. We have to begin to take a look and recognize that most of us are still in that place where we're trying to figure out how to do well what he's called us to do. So don't think I should have been there yesterday. It will be 60 probably before you hit your stride. So relax and begin following hard after the things that make Jesus happy. And as you, as you train yourself, yes, it is training. Spiritual vitality is training. Paul said physical training is of little value, has some value. But spiritual training holds promise both in this life and the life to come. I spent 45 minutes downstairs yesterday pulling, pushing, grunting, sweating hard. And it will only serve me this much. Question is, what did I do here to make these desires birth themselves out here? That's the question. It's the question. So what makes God happy that we need to begin striving toward training our spiritual vitality so that when we are 60, we're not lacking in desire. 
Your desires are strong and alive. Here they are. And I may pick my way through these. I may not go in order. So just... Number nine. It's, it's the Father's pleasure to take delight in the Son. The greatest thing we can learn is God greatly delights in the Son. This is Matthew 17, 5. This is the mountain of transfiguration. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This, speaking of Jesus, is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father delights in the Son and says to the people, Listen to Him. I'm happy with Him. Preachers say, Listen to me. Don't listen to the Son because it it presents this weird thing to the world and nobody wants to come after Jesus. As if they knew better. God says, listen to the Son. I know He says He's God. He is. It's going to wake you out for a couple hundred years till you figure out the Trinity. But it's okay. Listen to Him. It's God speaking. Listen the Father delights in the Son. And one of the greatest things we can ever do is to learn to delight in Jesus. Listen, God talk is great, but until God talk goes to Jesus talk, it can be empty in our context. Because we've got lots of Buddhists who talk about God. We've got lots of Muslims who talk about God. We've got lots of Hindus who talk about God. We've got lots of secular people who talk about God. Lots of all kinds of people who talk about God. But really? Who? Is your God? Do you know all gospel? All gospel has to begin with who is God? You can't have a gospel without answering the question, who is God? And when you get right down to the specifics of who God is, Jesus had to say some pretty crazy things. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. That's why they wanted to throw rocks at him because Jesus, they knew what he said. He just said, I'm Yahweh. Love the Son. Start here, Here's Discipleship 101. Read the Gospels till you know them by heart. You need to read and digest the Gospels. And I would say start with John. John is just packed and loaded with Jesus as God. Read the Gospels. Know them by heart. I always ask this question when I'm, I'm teaching my students. How many have actually read through one of the Gospels? None been in church all their lives and have yet to read through the Gospels. And my question is, what in the heck do you do in Sunday school? And you know what their answer is? We play games. Go home today and read John. And if you can't stomach reading, you know, 21 chapters, go read 1 John. It's just five. <laughs> go plow through the Gospels, and let the Son of God amaze you. It's crazy what Jesus says at places. And, and what will end up happening is what the Jesus in the Gospels will totally confront our concept of Jesus. And it will change your life.
I made a statement this morning. I told him if you go read a certain book, the first couple of chapters of that book will change your life. It will. But not like this. The first couple of chapters of John will transform your very idea of who God is. Go delight in the Son. The Father delights in the Son. Why should we not delight in the Son? Don't avoid the name Jesus. Don't just use God talk to fit in. When you talk of God, use the name of Jesus on purpose. And watch the conversation shift. And if you like discomfort, that will be very fun for you because it makes things very uncomfortable. Delight in the Son. As we delight in the Son of God, we bring God great happiness. Father delights in the Son. As we delight in the Son, God is glorified and we are encouraged. Number eight. It's, it's, it's the happiness, it's the pleasure of God to seek the fame of His name. 1 Samuel twelve twenty two. For the Lord, that is for Yahweh. Bible study note, you read in the Old Testament, you see capital, all caps, Lord. That is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Okay? For the Lord, Yahweh, will not forsake His people. For, and here's the reason, for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased Yahweh, or the Lord, to make you a people for Himself. There's enough in 1 Samuel 22 to preach on for months. Why will God not forsake His people? Purpose clause for His great namesake. Why will God not walk away from His people? Because His people carry His name. By God preserving His people... What gets trumpeted? The name of the Lord. So by God saving and lavishing love and mercy and kindness in spite of their stupidity on them, what gets shown? Him. Listen, by God being gracious and kind to us, that is not just for our sakes. It is so that His name gets exalted. That, that Jesus... Fame becomes a groundswell. And it becomes a tsunami that runs ahead of us so that wherever we go, He got there first. And they go into Jericho and Rahab the prostitute says, We've heard of the Lord. I know you're spies and you're here, but He got here first. And our hearts melted because we heard what He did for you at the sea. Listen. When God is merciful to a people, He runs ahead and His fame goes way, way ahead. It's Father's pleasure to seek the fame of His name. And so therefore it should become our pleasure that we would want to make Him glorious. We'd want His fame to increase. Not ours, but His. And what's interesting is American Christianity seeks to increase our stature. We want more. We want to climb the ladder. We want to be the best, the biggest, the brightest, the coolest. We're seeking our fame. And it's the exact opposite of what God's mission is. God's delight is that His fame would go ahead. That's why Paul says things like God delights in taking the weak to show His strength. It will not surprise me that God will not use the mega church to change the world, but He will use the house church in China to show what we value as strength, He doesn't value at all. 
He values the fame of his great name. I almost fear greatness. Although I selfishly often seek it. Because I don't want to put myself in a position to be unusable. God's seeking the fame of his great name. And it should be our delight to trumpet his fame, not ours. Number six. It's the Father's pleasure to crucify the Son to save sinners. We don't run from Isaiah 53.10. We've got to run to this and embrace this because here, here is great hope. There is no conflict in this passage. It was not Roman soldiers that put Jesus to death. It was not the Sanhedrin. It was the Father. And until you get that, you cannot be saved. The cross of Jesus Christ is the idea of God the Father. To save people who are lost. So that it's God Himself who saves us from Himself. That He might make His name great and be merciful to sinners such as you and I. We run to a merciful Father from Genesis to Revelation who made a way for us to know Him. Listen carefully. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. This is active voice. This is Yahweh crushing the servant. He, Yahweh, the Lord, Father, has put Him, the Son, to grief. When his soul, the son's soul, makes an offering for guilt, he, the son, shall see his, the son's offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh, the father, shall prosper in his hand. The cross is the father's idea. And the son comes to execute the father's idea. So that a righteous, holy God can be merciful and gracious to people who spit in his face. Don't ever buy the lie that there is a God in the Old Testament that's different from the God in the New Testament. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The triune God of the universe has determined to be merciful to unrepentant sinners. So much so that the second person of the Trinity would come and execute the purpose of the Father by dying at the hands of the Father so that he could save sinners and bring them to the Father. Father loves you. So much so that you crush your son to save you and raise his son to give you life. Those are the things and those are just a few that make God real happy. And we 
if we are going to be set apart and be effective, we have to run toward the things that make God happy. And we will learn to find great delight in those. Close with this. One of the great challenges of growing in reading the scriptures and in your knowledge of God is that often we discover in our flesh the things that make God happy make us uncomfortable. It's okay. They're sort of supposed to. They're foreign to a fallen flesh. Be okay with the discomfort. Don't run to comfort. Let the Father mediate the discomfort of what is written so that what you find is Father solves the, the thought in you by the Spirit and what you discover is the multifaceted grace of God to take what is hard to swallow on the part of sinful people and by the Spirit make it a delight and a joy. And what ends up happening is our salvation is sweeter still and sweeter more because what was uncomfortable becomes a great delight and joy. Those are a few things that make God happy. And if we are going to be a great commission, going, transforming our culture people, we have to run after the things that make God happy, not what appeals most to a lost world. You will never find us seeking to appeal to anybody other than Jesus. He is our great delight. And what we do, we do for His fame. And as the Spirit would see fit, He may save others. But we seek their salvation through the gospel, not by our means. And that will make us effective and powerful. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm finished again. But we'll move on. That's okay. Um, Father, you are Lord, Lord your life. You are all we all we've got. There is no life apart from you. Father, I want to ask that you would Make us this just this we are just a little piece of the kingdom. There's so many more who are probably more effective and more whatever. But what we desire to be as a small piece of your kingdom is we want to do the things that make you happy. We don't want to incorporate into our thinking and our practice things that are contrary to the gospel, but we want to run hard toward Jesus and, and do things Jesus' way so that your fame is is made larger. That really is our desire. And, and I confess to you that often I think in terms that are sometimes contrary to that because I, I like fame and um, I'd like for us to be seen sometimes a little more publicly. And I just confess that before you and before our, my family. ask you to make us do the things that make you happy. I ask that you would shut doors that would lead to our fame, but you would open doors that lead to your fame. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Chief Shepherd Jesus, we invite you to come and make sure we stay in your deal, your way. And as we come to respond to you in song, we ask that you would be greatly glorified by lips that sing your praise because the transformation of the gospel to give new hearts to dead bodies so that somehow we could find a measure of delight in you and run toward you with all the delight you would give us to run to you in. So this morning, Holy Spirit, would you enable the delight factor to take effect and that your people in joy would run to you this morning in song. And you'd be honored and we'd be encouraged.